Murphy had been at King's side, just as he was this morning as they dashed to the Atlanta airport. Others in the movement snickered at the way Abernathy fell asleep during meetings and elbowed his way next to King whenever photographers were around. One associate lamented, What a burden Ralph was to Martin. Yet King trusted Abernathy absolutely, loved him as a brother, and despite considerable opposition, had designated him as his eventual successor at the helm of the SCLC. Abernathy was worried about his loyal friend. A few months before, he had returned from a trip to Europe and had found King changed. He was just a different person, Abernathy said. He was sad and depressed. Worst of all, King seemed obsessed by the subject of death and persisted in talking and speculating about his own end. Those close to King knew he had every reason in the world to be preoccupied with death. As the man who symbolized black America's determination for justice and equality, he attracted the hatred of violent racists. Over the years, he had received nearly every kind of twisted, anonymous death threat, and once in New York, a decade before, a deranged woman had stabbed him in the chest as he autographed books in a department store. The latest reminder of the danger King faced took place at the Atlanta airport on that April morning. The scheduled time of departure for Memphis passed, and their plane did not budge. King and Abernathy shifted impatiently in their seats. Finally, the pilot's voice crackled over the public address system. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to apologize for the delay, but today we have on board Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and we have to be very careful. We had the plane guarded all night, and we have been checking people's luggage. Now that everything's clear, we are preparing for takeoff. King laughed and shook his head. In all my flights, he said, I've never had a pilot say that. If I'm going to be killed, it looks like he's trying to make it only too plain to me. At 10.30 a.m., they landed in Memphis. It was King's third trip to the city in less than three weeks, but it was not a place he particularly wanted to be. He had come to support the city's striking sanitation workers, but every moment in Memphis was one less he had for his principal order of business that spring of 1968, the Poor People's Campaign. For months, King and the SCLC had been planning a massive demonstration to dramatize the plight of poverty-stricken Americans. It was an ambitious undertaking. King envisioned a great march in Washington, D.C., and the construction in the capital of a poor people's city of shacks and shanties that would remain standing until Congress approved sweeping anti-poverty legislation. All sorts of problems threatened to derail the campaign, and to keep it on track, King wanted to give it all his time and effort. Still, the 39-year-old minister could not say no to his friends in Memphis. The garbage collectors of Memphis were badly paid, overworked, and had no job security, no insurance, and no pensions. Nearly every garbage collector was black. When it rained, the black workers were sent home without pay, while their white supervisors were permitted to wait out the storm and draw their wages. In February 1968, the garbage collectors went on strike, demanding higher pay and better working conditions and benefits. The local government refused their demands, and as the strike dragged on, it became a paramount issue for the black community. In March, some black ministers appealed to King, 
Would he speak at a rally? Reluctantly, he rearranged his schedule, and on March 18, he spoke at Mason Temple. 15,000 people packed the huge old building to hear him speak. King loved addressing large crowds, and that day he was at the top of his oratorical form. Elated by the cheers, impressed by the sense of commitment in Memphis, he impulsively agreed to head a demonstration for the strikers. I will lead you on a march through the center of Memphis, he told the crowd. True to his word, on Thursday, March 28, a hot, uncomfortable day, King was back in town. The march began shortly after 11 o'clock in the morning, with King leading the way, Abernathy and the Memphis ministers at his side, their arms interlocked, their voices raised, singing, We shall overcome. Slowly, they moved through the streets towards city.